Good morning. It's Friday, the 25th of August, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj, based in Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day: BRICS is expanding, surprising, and even confounding skeptics. Foreign direct investment and foreign portfolio investments are slowing down. What options does the government have? What does it take to run a well-governed board with Kiki Mystery? The artificial intelligence rush resumes as Nvidia declares bumper revenue and profits. and airlines are reporting results beyond wildest expectations this is a core report with govindraj athiraj brics has more members it's an acronym which has come in for some criticism if not ridicule but despite everything it's still expanding Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa the countries announced on Thursday that the awaited expansion of the grouping will go ahead. Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, Argentina and Ethiopia will join BRICS said South African president Cyril Ramaphosa. The six countries are expected to become members starting 1st January 2024 and then there are more who are wanting to join but have not yet. Through this step the faith of numerous nations in a multipolar world order will become stronger said Prime Minister Narendra Modi welcoming the expansion in the five nation grouping BRICS is an acronym that started as BRIC that is without the s in 2001 and was coined by Jim O'Neill then with Goldman Sachs and as a term for Brazil China India and Russia later in 2010 South Africa was added to BRICS Jim O'Neill who I met in Goldman Sachs some years ago said that the global economy would be dominated by the four brick economies by 2050 and the main reason for this claim was that China India Brazil Russia and South Africa were ranked as the fastest growing or amongst the fastest growing and emerging market economies for several years now things have changed columnist TN9 and said last week that there was nothing like a good acronym to give currency to a dodgy idea and so it has been the case with BRICS For about a decade he says the idea held its own but has fallen apart after that. China the sixth largest economy in 2001 and India not in the top 10 then have done well but both are now in the top 5. But Brazil and Russia have fallen short. Russia doesn't even feature now in the 10 largest economies and India in turn stands apart for having a significantly lower per capita income than the other 3. Interestingly but not surprisingly China is jostling to build BRICS into a counter to G7 and even bring in countries like Pakistan according to reports something that India is obviously resisting According to TN9N the idea has even less chance of succeeding than the G15 group of leading developing economies which existed desultorily for a quarter century with a similar objective but then became defunct a decade ago For BRICS to take its place is problematic also since neither China nor Russia is a developing economy in any meaningful sense All they are is anti-West, says Tian Nainan. In that sense, BRICS is in danger of becoming a vehicle for Chinese diplomatic thrust, something that we and our policy wonks back home have to think much about. Markets and around, the geo-financial stock got slammed for the fourth day. Now, this is the point in the match where you wonder if a batsman can actually hit six sixes of all six balls. And how long will geo hit the 5% lower circuit, the maximum it's allowed to go? Anyway, I guess we'll now find out on Friday. The Sensex moved quite wildly on Thursday dropping 732 points from the day's high to finally end with a loss of 181 points at 65,252. The NSE Nifty 50 was up and down too before settling 57 points down at 19,387. India's big capital expenditure challenge. 
The government of India has ambitious growth and investment plans, much of it infrastructure-led. These span roads, railways, ports, airports and so on. The interesting thing is that government expenditure or plans for it also is triggering private capital expenditure, whose proposals now are at a 9-year high as per Reserve Bank of India data. So the fact that government and private expenditure intentions are moving together is the good news. The not-so-good news is that foreign direct investment has slowed, as we mentioned yesterday. It has declined 16% to $71 billion in the last year and has declined 22% in the first or last quarter of this financial year to $18 billion. Foreign portfolio investment is falling as well by about 33% in the last quarter, though portfolio investment, as we've discussed many times, follows a slightly different path and could bounce back suddenly. Not so the case with direct investment, which tends to be a little more linear in growth. So where does this leave the larger economic growth question for India, particularly since investment at a certain clip is key to drive it? To discuss this, I reached out to Ashok K. Bhattacharya, editorial director at the Business Standard and also columnist and author of a recent piece titled Nurturing CapEx with Foreign Investments Declining, It is Necessary to Maintain Growth in Government Capital Expenditure. I began by asking him how he was seeing flows of all kinds. Right now, the government is certainly under some sort of popular pressure from electoral considerations point of view to spend more under various schemes and projects. Now, part of those projects will be under the capital expenditure segment, but part of those expenditure will also be in the revenue schemes in the sense that if you are extending the free food grain scheme under the public distribution system beyond December, the expenditure may be small, but it will be a permanent hit to your overall expenditure, revenue expenditure. So, right now, if the government is committed to a fiscal deficit of 5.9% of GDP in the current year, and if it wants to stay committed to that, then the pressure will be on other expenditure to be curtailed. Now, the fear is that maybe the capital expenditure side can take a hit. Now, if that takes a hit, my worry is the benefits that you had seen so far in the last year or so where private corporate capital expenditure has gradually inched up in response to the government spending more money on the capex, that may slow down because if the government does not spend money, then the private sector will also not be enthused to reciprocate on those sectors. I mean, if the government slows down its expenditure on the railways, let us say, then there are a lot of down-the-line railway component makers, the railway project suppliers, they will be adversely affected. So that's the real fear. And this fear can get worse if your foreign direct investment is also coming down, which the RBI data for the first quarter of the current financial year shows that it has come down by another 20 or 28 percent. So that is the dilemma that the central government faces right now. Let me say that the states also face a similar dilemma because the states are also doing quite well on their capital expenditure. And if they don't feel encouraged to spend more on capital expenditure, I think the entire investment and growth cycle may get damaged a bit. And that is the real fear. So, AKP, it also looks like private investment, on the other hand, which is by companies, is going up. Yes, you are right. 
This is the redeeming feature of India's CapEx program, the government's CapEx program. What is happening, I understand, is that the government's CapEx program was launched with a lot more money, I would say, from 2021-22, post-COVID. And it is believed that the government CapEx can crowd in private corporate expenditure. And this is exactly what seems to be happening, that from around 1.16 lakh crore of private corporate investments in capital projects in 2020-21, it has gone up to around 3.52 lakh crore in 2022-23. Now, this is the highest figure that we have achieved in the last 10 years. So I think with government capex going up, what is happening is that you are also crowding in private corporate investments. Now, it is also possible that because of the growth momentum and the demand being there in certain sectors, you are seeing this investment pickup in the private sector as well. But as I said, the problem would be if the government stops spending money on the capital side, the private sector investment, those green shoots that we saw, might not be there for long. So the situation is that the government is clearly a prime driver of all of this, which is also pulling the private investment train, so to speak. And currently, we are going to be dependent on this because there is not enough or as much foreign investment, including direct investment coming in. So in a sense, what you're saying is, if I understand rightly, things are a little more precarious than they were earlier. You are no longer getting the foreign equity or the foreign direct investment the manner in which the country was getting earlier. The declining trend started last year, which was the first time in the last 10 years foreign direct investment declined. Now, this trend is continuing even in the first quarter of the current financial year. Now, remember, if the foreign direct investment starts declining, it has another implication because along with a decline in your merchandise exports, and slowing down of service exports, it may have some implications for management of the current account. So, therefore, it is very necessary that we should sustain the investment momentum and, of course, take some necessary steps so that the foreign investment starts coming in. Remember that the private corporate investment, that momentum is maintained. The foreign investors may also join in that and the trend may get reversed. Right, AKB. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Governance on Indian Boards Governance on boards, in this case Indian companies, is a sensitive subject. One view is that a few bad cases are getting blown out of proportion by us, that is those of us in media. It could also be argued that the cases that are being reported are getting proportionate mention because they're so high profile. And since they're so high profile, they usually tend to cast aspersions on other companies as well. I put the question of why board governance in India was so weak to KK Mistry, now independent director of HDFC Bank and until recently vice chairman and CEO of HDFC. He lobbed it back to me, saying that media was blowing a few cases out of proportion. I then asked about the very public spat between the Adani Group and Deloitte, no names were mentioned by the way, and asked what should a company do if it disagreed with an auditor's findings. 
Mystery's answers follow, but there are several other insights that you can hear tomorrow on the Core Report Weekend Edition and what he expects from a board when he joins on. Mystery sits on several boards, apart from HDFC Bank, of course, and they include companies like TCS, Great Eastern Shipping and Torrent. No, no, I don't think that's the right way to do it. I'm sure there is a way of convincing the auditor to your point of view or at the end of the day, you accept what they are saying and put a qualifying note saying that we do not agree with this view. In our view, this is the way it should get done. But finally, the accounts have to get signed. So to get the account signed, you have, first you make every possible conceivable effort to convince your 99 out of 100 times, you will be able to do it if you're right. Theoretically, if you're not able to convince them, then my advice to the company is adopt what the, what the auditor is saying rather than getting a qualification in the accounts. And you can put your point of view in public domain saying that whilst this has been done because your auditors wanted it, you personally think this should not be done because of this, 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 this reason. It's over to Wall Street now where the top performing stock in the S&P 500 this year is NVIDIA. Chipmaker NVIDIA's revenue in the latest or second quarter more than doubled to $13.5 billion from a year ago. Net profit for the company's second quarter was also at $6 billion, surpassing forecasts. Moreover, the company is saying that business is actually growing faster than expected thanks to ever-increasing demands of computing needs for artificial intelligence. NVIDIA chips power several popular AI tools, including OpenAI's ChatGPT and similar language generation systems made by Google, Microsoft, and others. NVIDIA has invested in making chips and software for AI for more than a decade and has no competitors who can yet match it, says the Wall Street Journal. The race is on to adopt generative AI, NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang said, describing a new computing era where companies are transitioning from general-purpose computing to digital infrastructure geared for AI. Bumper Profits for Airlines on aviation, whichever way you look at it, this has been a bumper year or two. This may not be so apparent in India, where one airline, Indigo, is evidently walking away with most of the industry's profits, but that's not the case elsewhere. Qantas, the Australian airline, reported record earnings despite billions of dollars being spent on Boeing, Airbus jets, returning $324 million to shareholders, and even giving $320 worth of travel credits to its entire rank-and-file workforce, Bloomberg is reporting. Qantas turned in profits of $2.47 billion for 22-23 after losses of $1.86 billion the previous year. And finally, Qantas donated more than a billion loyalty points to frequent flyers. The gesture was meant, the airline said, as a thank you. This obviously comes after the peak of the pandemic in 2020, which pushed Qantas, as it did to many other airlines, to near bankruptcy. The post-pandemic demand has been so strong and so long that prices are staying sky-high, something anyone travelling west from India would know and has known for the last two to three years now. Qantas and many peers are pricing tickets at levels unthinkable before the pandemic, says Bloomberg. Flying Sydney, New York return with Qantas in business class, for instance, can cost more than $12,000, says Bloomberg again. Among other hospitality news and back home, Reliance has announced it will co-manage three hospitality projects with the Oberoi Group of Hotels, in which, by the way, it already owns a roughly 18% stake. The three projects include a premium property, Anant Vilas, in Mumbai's Bandra Kurla Complex, or BKC as it's known, Stoke Park in the United Kingdom, and an upcoming project in the state of Gujarat. 
In the first two cases, it looks like the Oberoi Group is being handed over or taking over existing properties of Reliance and rolling them out as branded hotels. Whether they were both originally planned to be hotels in this form or this brand is not clear to me, at least the property in the United Kingdom. Oberoi already has a Trident brand property in the Bandra Kurla complex and of course has its famous South Mumbai or Nariman Point properties. BKC is Mumbai's new business district and Anant Villas would be a premium property like its Villas properties in Udaipur, Jaipur and so on. But those of course are resorts and this is in the middle of the city. Reliance says Stoke Park owns sports and leisure facilities in Stoke Poges, Buckinghamshire. The facilities include a hotel, sports facilities and one of the highest rated golf courses in Europe. Remote workers are disconnected with corporate mission. People who work from home are feeling more disconnected from the larger mission of their employers, the Wall Street Journal is reporting. A new Gallup survey says the share of remote workers who said they felt a connection to the purpose of their organizations fell to 28% from 32% in 2022, the lowest level since before the pandemic. The findings flow from a survey this spring and summer of nearly 9,000 US workers whose jobs can be done remotely. In short, more remote workers appear to be approaching their jobs with a gig worker mentality, fulfilling the basic responsibilities of the role rather than anticipating the broader needs of their team or company, said Jim Harter, chief workplace scientist at Gallup, which has tracked worker engagement since 2000. Most professional roles, he pointed out to the Wall Street Journal, tacitly include expectations that go beyond the actual work, such as mentoring others or spurring innovation. Something I've wondered about too. Now, despite the lack of connection, the Gallup survey showed that 38% of people who work remotely full or part-time are engaged or enthused about their work compared to 34% of in-office workers. The findings can be confusing. But one reason they scored higher in these engagement metrics than their office peers is that they say they have a clear idea of what's expected on them. And before I go, tennis legend Rafael Nadal is Infosys's new brand ambassador as part of a three-year partnership, the Bangalore-based IT major said. Nadal will be ambassador for the brand and Infosys's digital innovation, the company said. I love the way Infosys has brought its digital expertise across industries to the global tennis ecosystem. It has transformed the tennis experience for a billion global fans and truly empowered all players on the tour with analytics that they could have only dreamt of a few years ago, Nadal said in a statement. As part of this collaboration, Infosys and Nadal's coaching team are developing an AI-powered match analysis tool, a personalized tool. It will be available in real time to Nadal's coaching team to simultaneously track insights from his live matches when he's back on the tour along with data from his earlier matches, the company said. Infosys has been a digital innovation partner for the ATP Tour, Roland Garros, Australian Open and the International Tennis Hall of Fame, where it says it leverages AI, cloud, data analytics and digital experience. That's it from me. Have a great weekend. And don't forget to catch the interview with Keki Mistri, Independent Director of HDFC Bank on audio that's Spotify and Apple, as well as video on YouTube. See you next week. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at thecore.in. 
Thank you for listening.